Welcome into Natchez Glen House Stories. This is 21 people. We're officially old enough to drink now, if you're going by the Natchez Glen House Story Count game. On the line with me, I have Kelly. Kelly uh, and I are going to attempt to do something over the course of this story, which if you've heard of uh, the Israelis and the Palestinians, uh, it may be of similar difficulty in my mind, uh, or just maybe in my mind, of bringing some clarity to the relationship between flower grower, flower farmer, person who grows flowers and occasionally sells flowers for money, and floral designers, and that world. I'm going to start here with you, Callie. This is something that I'm probably sensitive to on a front many people would think I wouldn't be. Do you look at this sometimes as there's the international flower market world, and then to me, there's like the domestic American-grown or U.S.-grown flower world? Like when you're sourcing, at first glance, how do you look at it? Do you go, okay, are there international flowers and domestic flowers available to me, and do you prioritize it all using those as maybe your first two things? So the way that I approach each of my events is um, I start with my local flower farmers. Um, I have about, I have my core flower farmers that I reach out to each week. Um, But we have about 30 growers here in Maryland that I can pull from. So um, I don't even go look at the wholesalers first and see what's out there across the country or even internationally, I really start local, especially during, you know, our growing season, which is now until, you know, first hard frost, which is about mid-October. Um, but this is this is not something I've always practiced. Um, I've been designing for 20 years, um, and I came up in the retail world where um, buying local, buying American grown was not a thing. Um, you know, there were uh, the gardeners, you know, who would bring in, you know, sweet little bouquets of daffodils or tulips in the spring that we may use in the shop. But really it was what was cheapest and it was what was available in that um, from the wholesaler. You just um, you just keyed on the word for me, right? And I think sometimes we're, we're, we're tiptoeing around this subject in this flower, farmer, floral designer world, right? Cheapest. Mm-hmm. One of yeah. the things that nobody wants to address, Callie, is... The international flowers are the cheapest solution. Yeah, and they are. Uh, and, American and, and grown you, is not and, cheap. You, well, and when you, one of the things that I'd like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put a lot of weight on you in this conversation, Kelly, because you're representing the entire world of floral designers right now. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. When I hear people or see people using a lot of that product, the internationally grown, super commoditized product, no matter what it is, right? It could be a a cappuccino colored rose or it could be a yellow Gerber daisy. To my eye, I look at it and go, cheap inventory, cheap product being used. How, is there, is that because, and is that happened because there is a lot of consumer out there, clients who don't know that it's cheap? It's almost something that you can almost get away with because the consumer market isn't that educated on those pricings. 
but the consumers are definitely not educated at all. There's not a conversation being had um, between designers and consumers or even on the mass market level. Um, there's a disconnect in the fact that the term local, locally grown, they think that that means cheap. I mean, I deal with this with every single client. They'll say, whatever's in season and, and cheaper and local. And I stop them right there and I'm like, in season and local is not cheaper. Um, and there's a reason why. And I, you know, that's my platform to educate them. Um, you know, that there's fair wages that are being paid. Um, they can't produce uh, thousands and thousands of stems like our um, South American farms. Um, and, you know, what they're paying their workers in South America versus what they're paying our workers here in America is, it's huge disparity. Um, I'm not an expert on this. I don't have numbers, but I do know what I see from my flower farmers. And as I travel around the country to different farms, I see um, the uh, work environment that they're dealing with um, here. And then what I've learned, you know, that happens in other countries, um, it's, it's night and day. Um well, and one sure. of, one of the, the things yeah. after the podcast I did with Nate Miller about Colombian flowers, I sat mm-hmm. down and he and I through email, we did some math on this, Kelly. So the average flower stem coming mm-hmm. out of Colombia has, wait for this people, get your calculators out if you don't have them already, right? It has three one hundredths, one hundredths of a cent per stem in labor associated with the flower stem. So essentially, when you have an internationally grown flower, there is zero labor incurred to it because of the labor discrepancy. And the overall math that those international flower growers save versus, let's say, if they have their production somewhere in the United States and maybe they paid people $15 an hour, like in California maybe, was Mm -hmm. well in excess of $50 million annually that those companies would save at doing the same volume. So clearly the profit motive for them is way different than like what you're saying for a local grower. There, there's just, mm-hmm. there's no comparison there. So when you educate that client to that fact, right, that that initial image that they have of like, in, in my mind on this sometimes is the flower farmer does a bad job in branding that it's almost like the roadside stand has got to be cheaper than the grocery mm-hmm. store kind of mentality. What's that reaction from the client? Are, I mean, are they shocked? Are they surprised? How do you lead them down that in an educational way at the same time with still trying to use that as the thing that you'd prefer to use? Um, I mean, it varies based on the person. Um, there's some people that really hear what I'm saying and you can see the wheels turning as they're sitting there listening to me and it kind of changes the dialogue, but there's some that just don't care. Um, you know, they just, they hear that and they're like, okay, well, I still want what's cheaper. And that's not my ideal client. Um, it may have been my client when I started, you know, my own business eight years ago because honestly, I didn't know what I was doing and I was just trying to see how it worked. But as um, I defined who I was as a business owner and where I wanted 
my business to go and what I wanted to stand for, um, I became a lot more vocal. And, you know, it's kind of taboo when you're talking to your clients, when you bring up the price factor, you know, it's like everybody tiptoes around it and, you know, they know what they want to spend, but they don't want to talk about it. And I put that up front, you know, like, let's talk hard numbers. Um, let's talk about what this costs, you know, and when I tell them, you know, what a, um, like an Alaskan teeny, you want teenies in August, I can get you that. But here's what it's going to cost per stem. And it's shocking to them, um, you know. But if it's a value to them and that's what they want, then they're going to spend it. Also, I have a lot of clients that follow me on social media that I have found after I've done their events they continue to follow me on my journey and the appreciation grows. And now they are consumers out there in the world aware of their flower farmers and their communities. And when they're, you know, in the grocery stores, they're looking for the labels and country of origin. And so I feel like it, it moves past just the waiting, wedding day well, and, and that dialogue and continues. That's so important because one of the things that as a, a former strategic branding person, Kelly, that I look at is if I was in a florist, floral designer kind of role, I would be very concerned with what I see currently going on right now in 2019 unfolding in the retail flower space. Mm-hmm. Grocery stores, points of purchase that are diversifying and online sales through both website fronts and apps and maybe Amazon as well, that those commodity flowers that you've been sourcing internationally are going to be really readily available to consumers through all of those places mm-hmm. more than they ever have before. Yeah. So the days of you bringing in uh, a flower stem, you know, I'll continue to pick on cappuccino rose just because maybe I just want a cappuccino, Kelly, but that... <laughs> Those cappuccino roses that maybe you were buying for as cheap as 30, 40 cents a stem out of Colombia, and maybe there was a minute where you were able to really make good money off of using those in a design, those consumers are going to start seeing that rose more in Mm -hmm. pre-done designs that Jeff Bezos is offering, or this app is ordering, or books, or one of these things. And their product is like 50 bucks delivered to your house by a drone. To to me, I'd be concerned. I I would be looking for the added edge of product and trying to get out of that commodity cycle. Is there any of that talk amongst like in in your circle of floral designers? Is there... So you're asking, yeah, is anyone concerned like how cheap it is? Yeah is, or, any, yeah. is anyone concerned that this is a lot of the product that's being used by people coming out of those international marketplaces is going to be seen by consumers and clients more as a mm-hmm. commodity because it's going to be offered at prices that reflect that. Right. Um, I don't hear those conversations being had at all. I think, most floral designers aren't paying attention to what's going on um, in the mass market scene or in the uh, retail world. Most of my circle is event designers. Um, so 
honestly, I'm not in touch with how the retail world is viewing things or how they're functioning. Um, I've really been removed from that for a long time. Um, and they source so differently than event designers do. Um, they, I mean, just having spent seven years in retail, I know that when they're selling designs, you know, the average consumer wants to spend about, you know, $45, $50 on an arrangement for grandma. And they want the biggest bouquet because $50 to them is a lot of money and you better get a lot of bang for your buck. So as a retail shop, you know, they're trying to find, you know, the cheapest flowers. They're not sourcing local. They're not looking to see what's growing in California in January. Um, and I don't, I don't know how you change that. Um, other than change the dialogue with the consumer and help them understand the value of what they're paying for. I mean, I had a friend send me a photo on Valentine's Day from his um, flower shop of what he had sent his wife, and he spent $85. And it was the most disgusting thing I'd ever seen. Um, You know, it was full of, I'm not going to say what flowers, but um, it it was a disgrace, you know, to what's being offered out there and at what cost, you know, and um, it's just heartening. And, you know, you see shops going under constantly. Well, and is that that conversation, what you just mentioned, Kelly, is the thing for me that I'd be so concerned about. There are less florists today Mm-hmm. than there were just 10 years ago. And, oh, and, and, and part of this is I had a real struggle working with independent garden centers in the nursery world on this same stance, right? Mm-hmm. Home Depot and Lowe's showed up. And independent garden centers had historically dealt in commodity plants. And what we're talking about here are commodity flowers. Mm-hmm. And Home Depot and Lowe's were really good at handling and maneuvering and logistics and controlling margin on commodities. Well, Mm -hmm. what's happened in the floral world is the same thing. There Mm -hmm. are companies and sources, grocery stores, online retailers, who are really good at this commodity flower game. And the local small mom and pop florist are never going to compete with that. But yet- They continue to choose to compete in that world. And that's the thing that perplexes me as a business owner or someone in a a sales kind of logic. I wouldn't even try to compete in that space, but I still see them doing it. So that's what I'm so perplexed by is why are these people not looking for these alternatives, not looking for the local source flower that gives them some other thing to sell? There are, I mean, I've seen, especially here in Maryland, we have um, a farm, uh, a shop in Baltimore and we have a shop in D.C. that's really focused on, they only source within a 100-mile radius. Um, and they, they have a niche um, that their clients don't care what they're getting. They're not looking for specific flowers, specific color palettes. They're looking more for what the flowers represent um, and that experience of connecting to your community. Um, I think 
more shops could be successful in changing their business um, towards that model. But I think there's a lack of education in some of these larger realms of, um, you know, old school floral thinking. Um, you know, it's like, how do you, how do you buy an American grown rose at, you know, a dollar five a stone retail versus getting a rose in the same color at 69 cents, you know, wholesale. Um, and, and I, I, one of the things I've seen you doing through the Instagram lens that I am encouraged by, and, and Kelly, you're one of the good ones. You're one of the people who I see doing things that make me feel like, okay, this this can work. See it. There's there's a path mm-hmm. to this succeeding. Is working with local growers in, in mm-hmm. a real honest, transparent dialogue kind of way. The the amount of messages that I occasionally get that are asking, you know, do I have dahlias in uh, March? is a little surprising sometimes, Kelly, that, you know, I would love to help people that are local, that are designers, that are florists, but we at least need to get to that dialogue conversation. How did that go about for you? Did you, were you the one who initiated to the grower? Did growers come to you? How have you got into this place where it seems like you're, you're, you're at least at transparency and dialogue or always working Mm -hmm. towards it? Um, I think for my local um, community, I've been very vocal in the last five years, just in more of a personal mission. Um, I enjoyed getting out, meeting my farmers, finding out what I could grow. And when I started eight years ago, I was a young mom, um, and going to the farmer's market was um, kind of my treat for the week. Um, cause I got to have adult conversation and, um, and I got to see the flowers, um, and see things that were growing right down the street from me that I didn't even know could grow here in Maryland. I mean, I was very green and, um, I was intrigued by it. And the farmers were really, um, the ones that invited me to their farm said, Hey, come see where we're going, see what we're doing. And they took the time to meet with me and they would walk their fields with me. And we would talk about, you know, what they're planning for the year, you know, so that I could then start thinking about, well, for my October wedding, what can I use that you grow? For my July wedding, what can I, you know, source from you? Um, but this isn't something that happened overnight. I mean, it has been about an eight-year process for me to really um, develop these relationships and teach myself what grows, you know, seasonally. Um and then I just took that to a whole different level over the last two years where I said, okay, well, I know that I can only source from my local growers consistently March through October, but I still have a mortgage to pay and I still have weddings in those shoulder months. So I really started connecting with farmers across the country in Texas and California and Oregon and Washington Um in Wisconsin, you know, all over the country um, and finding out what can I source when um, and, and what ships. And that's something that farmers are starting to catch on to. Like, 
how to ship their product, you know, and what ships well. And I'm trialing with a lot of farmers across the country, just seeing, you know, there's there's a hesitancy to ship some products because this is a new, you know, um, thing for them. So I said, send me your product. Let's let's test it out. Let's see um, what does well in transport. You know, what does well when there's a breakdown in the cold chain. Like, let's test this out. Um, it is really important for flower farmers and for designers to have an open dialogue. There is no growth and no change that can happen if we all just have our preconceived notions of what the other is doing. And that's really where I've become vocal with my peers. Um, and our um, the Maryland Cut Flower Growers Association has been really progressive. And for the second year, they've hosted a Grow the Movement um, one-day conference where they bring all the growers together and all the florists. And we just have um, about three to four hours where it's just open dialogue. You know, we have a panel where... We discussed what works well. Like, how do you plan for this? How do you work as a team um, in sourcing each week? You know, and how do you deal with, you know, we had 70 inches of rain here in Maryland last year, and a lot of our farmers lost a lot of their products. So what do you do then as a designer? Um, and then we broke up into small groups, and we talked about growing trends. We talked about color trends. Um, the farmers want to know, what are we selling? What are our clients wanting? Um, and they're willing to grow based on what we're seeing. But then we also talk about, well, not growing too much because trends change. Um, so, you know, this is a new path for us here in Maryland. Um, but it's really opened a genuine, authentic dialogue. And um, there are more farmers that are connecting with designers here and there's more designers um, changing the way that they source and the way that they design. Um, they want to connect with their community. Well, and they that, want that alternative source. of seasonality that you mentioned to mm -hmm. me, I think is key. And one of the things in several of these podcasts that I've done where the, the international flowers have come up versus local, I think the, mm -hmm. the narrative is, is two verses. Obviously, like you said, we have what's called winter in large portions of North America. So mm -hmm. local is not going to do it in the month of January for someone that still has design work to do. But like, as you said, right. you can open it up to domestic flower production. And we do have mm -hmm. that. When you, yeah. when you've met with these growers in, in the Maryland cooperative that you guys are, have created and continue to work with, mm -hmm. one of the things that I am concerned about is so many people who right now, everyone knows my feelings on workshops consistently, that a lot of the new people who come into this, almost through either door, Kelly, which is sort of odd, right? Either through the floral designer world or the flower farmer world, it's a bit of a naive Pollyannic door they might be entering through. What I'm concerned about is some of the people teaching these workshops sort of have their own agenda and a lot of those people aren't talking about these type subjects of how to use local and domestic versus international, how to mm -hmm. get clients to notice those differences between that product and commodity products that come out of the international market. How are you seeing that? People that, you know, I'm, I'm someone like yourself eight years ago, like you mentioned, 
you know, I'm brand new to this. How are we reaching those people? Um, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of talk about just the pretty, um, and not a lot of talk about, you know, behind the business. Um, that's a question I get a lot. Um, and I don't know if you saw that, um, Mary Kate Canane of the local bouquet in Rhode Island and I, we started a new business called the floral field trip. Um, and the reason we started this new business is because of, of this. Um, there is a lack of knowledge or the lack of confidence among designers about where to source, um, what it costs, how to, you know, work that into your, um, old school business thinking, um, when you've been sourcing, you know, you know, using a lot of imports. Um, and so, we thought that there was a hole in the industry and that there was a need for it. Um, so that's where our focus is right now is just giving a platform for designers to have the confidence and the knowledge to go back to their businesses and make this change. Um, and I mean, we get, we get messages on Instagram or email all the time. Can you, can I hire you to sit down and teach me? how to plan this out for a year. Like they're just, they want to do it, but then it's so overwhelming that then they just fall back into their old ways and they just hit up their wholesaler to tell me what's pretty and cheap. So, so you know, what do you, what do you see? That is something for me, right? That I'm okay. Let, let's, let's boil this down. Let's parse this out a little bit. Kelly, my concern here, my view of this has always been, What's happening here? Like, why is someone choosing international flowers? Uh, I had this happen several times last year as a great example. So for me, I have typically about a thousand cut dahlias a day available Mm -hmm. from July till frost. So very rarely is anybody going to throw a number at me that I can't meet. You know, if you say I need 700 dark burgundy dahlias, I'm like, sure. When do you need them? It's not that big for that particular flower. Mm-hmm. Last year, there were a couple of times where there were local designers who used a greenhouse grown garden rose sort of looking variety. And I was knee deep in garden roses at that same moment. Mm-hmm. And I sent them a message and I was like, hey, what gives? You know, mm-hmm. why? Why didn't you use these versus those? And the response was, oh, I didn't even think about it. And for me, Kelly, I'm trying to figure out here, is it a choice of price? Is that the driver, right? And sometimes as a mm-hmm. local grower, people would be surprised. You know, I might be so knee deep in roses that week that I'm like, hey, I'll match whatever price you got. You know, if the word $1 is involved some weeks, I'll be like, sure. Or is it convenience? Like, what do you think that initial, you said that sort of, that insecurity, that reluctance, what is it first? Is it just the convenience element or is it the price element or is there something else I'm not even thinking of? Um, I think it's, I think it's a number of things. Um, I think when we get into wedding season, um, you know, you're just head down, you're not planning in advance. Your weddings are coming so fast that you're finishing one and you're planning for the next. Um, and I think it's a, a lack of organization. Um, 
from these designers that are taking on too much work um, and not having enough help behind the scenes. And so they're just calling up their wholesaler and they're like panicking um, because it takes more effort to reach out to you and then reach out to the next grower and say, what do you have this week? Um, it, designers need, and that's, it's that lack of confidence, that lack of knowing where, where to go and, and, you know, just falling, you know, to the wholesaler because that's a security blanket. Um, and it is price, um, you know, because designers aren't pricing their work appropriately. So you sell a, a bridal bouquet for $200, but really you're spending about 150 in products. So um, you just gave that bouquet away for free and you panicked. Um, there's a lot that's behind it. Um, there's in the last eight years, I've seen, you know, there was not a ton of us um, just event wedding designers. Um, and now there's, we're inundated with them all across the country that people think it's easy. It's, it's fun. It's cute. You know, um, it's Instagram. It's Instagrammable. Um, but what they fail to do is educate themselves or understand the hard work that goes behind it and how to do it sustainably. I mean, there's going to be a whole turnover of designers. I guarantee you because this work is hard and it's, it's got to be priced appropriately to be sustainable. Um, so I think there's a lot of factors. I think it's not planning um, in advance. Um, it's not wanting to take the time to find out what is growing local and make all those extra calls or emails. Um, and it's a price factor because they didn't price their events correctly. But this is where I think educating yourself, taking the time to know what your roses cost versus what the wholesaler is going to charge for them can change all this but the designers have to be willing and they're they're lazy well and, and and here's here's transparency people in all things right so for me i have universal pricing essentially we have a large portion of the business that i do is retail based and people come out and we do these guided flower cutting tours and people get 20 to 30 dahlia stems and it's 50 dollars. on the wholesale side of things i sell dahlias for like two dollars a stem so which is the same that's on par yeah so it's like the same for everybody and that's how i sort of approach it it makes my life easier and my accountant's life easier Mm -hmm. as well kelly so when i talk to floral designers the price thing comes up a lot you know like Mm -hmm. um well you know i i can't pay this or i can't pay that or price 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 but two dollars a stem. You can pay it. That, well, and two dollars a stem seems really cheap, Kelly. If I'm being honest, right? <laughs> like, I, I are, mean, I'm surprised you're not at three dollars a stem. Let's be honest. Well, well and I, so I, I, I have early on, I was really sensitive to my previous careers have made me sensitive to the commodity world, and I had a real mm-hmm. understanding of the international flower marketplace and what prices they were at. So I think to be realistic, you know, you don't go into this going. I'm going right. to get $14 for my yeah. cafe LA stems this year, um, <laughs> you, you know, right. which I yeah. think there are people that, that maybe yeah. do think that I think there is that perception that that exists out there. So if the local grower is having communication that is saying, Hey, listen, I understand the needs of pricing. I understand how you need to price things. The, the element that you brought up that I think is really important here that I'd like to 
for you and I to break down again is the saturation in the market. How do you, as someone that, that now has developed a reputation for doing good work, a reputation for using really interesting, unique sourced product, what do you say to that client who goes, well, you know, um, Jim, who I met with yesterday, uh, he told me he could do this uh, wedding for like a third of what you just quoted me. How, how do you handle that? How does that conversation unfold for you? Or do you just hang up? Or, or, or now, Kelly, you can't hang up a phone anymore. I was complaining about this the other day. Now you just have to tap your screen real hard. You know, there's no right. like, movie right. scene where you slam the phone down any longer. Now you just tap your screen hard. No. How do you deal with that? Is that, again, just the education answer? Um, this happens to me more than most people think. I mean, people see that I'm successful and I'm doing a lot, um, but there's a lot of, uh, rejection behind the scenes. Um, because I price based on the quality of the blooms that I am sourcing from my partners and I am not going to apologize for that and I'm not going to change it. Um, it, it happens, and most of my rejections come through email. Um, thank you, you know, usually they go, um, thank you, but we're going in a different direction with flowers, which AKA means we found somebody cheaper. Um, and so I always try to ask who, who they chose to work with. Um, and it's not always based on price. If I find out who they've chosen to work with, a lot of times it's one of my peers. And if there's somebody I respect and I know that they do good work and I know that they're pricing, correctly that I'm not offended I'm like okay you connected with them you know we all we all have a reason why um but I know if it's somebody that's new on the scene that is just trying to get work and they're doing stuff to put on Instagram then that's that's when I feel really burned um because they're doing a disservice to all of us um there have to be standards and these new designers that are coming up and they want to work, they want to be, you know, in the league that the rest of us have worked our way up to. They think it happens overnight and it doesn't. Um, and they're going to get the cheapest, prettiest flowers that they can and try to compare it to our work. Um, yeah, me, it's frustrating. Let it's me frustrating. flip the, the question a little bit here because this is something I've seen and again Kelly I never name names now occasionally I'll give the first <laughs> letter of the word and then give the rest of the word like starts with a W ends in old foods I'm not going to do that with this but this is something I see a lot mm -hmm. I see some floral designers who are selling luxury mm -hmm. and big glamorous over the top floral design mm-hmm but yet when I see their work to my trained eye, I go commodity, 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 international. There's about, give or take, 45 to 60 cents a stem there. There's about $60 worth of flowers. What about them, that? What about that? Yeah, what, um, what about, how does that translate, I guess, to a client? Because clearly you're in more of a Maybe this is what you say sometimes, what you've said about people being naive, maybe not understanding that you're more in a client services business first, then you're in a creative business. But the client service part of it is is 
in many ways, probably more important than sometimes the creative part, that the client doesn't maybe know that, that that's only $60 worth of internationally grown Colombian roses there, but you're selling them like they're going to have this huge glamorous wedding and the price that that designer is charging them might be super high end, despite it only being $60 worth of flowers. Mm-hmm. At that point, for those designers, I think it's, there's, the value is in how much can they get that stem for and how much, like in that. Um, they don't care where the product's coming from. They want to know who's cheapest and who can give them the highest quantity. Um, it's, they don't, they don't care who's growing it, what the situation is for that farmer. Um, it, it's just, it's just a product. It's a, it's a means to an end. Um, there's no value in that other than the fact that they want to achieve this glamour high style luxury look and they want to get there in the cheapest way possible so that they can make the most money. And and that's okay for that person. I feel like everybody has their why, everybody has a reason. Um it's not for me. And um it is disheartening, you know, to see some of my peers doing this. But I, again I'm not out here to shame anybody to um to say what's right what's wrong i just hope that through what i do and through my dialogue and through my actions that i can encourage them to make change in the way that they are sourcing that there's more purpose behind their flowers that it's not just a flower that it represents more that they know that they're supporting their community or their you know um their country's economy whatever that is um but to have purpose behind your design. Let me throw this at you because this is something that for me, I've paralleled to this. Some of what we're talking about there reminds me of the restaurant industry from like the mid 1980s. Okay. You had the high end steakhouse with the chef who was wearing the big high comical taupe chef hat who the presentation of the restaurant was very, you know, over the top, old school. It was, uh, you know, uh, Bananas Foster, Cherry's Jubilee with a flambe, uh, this kind of vibe, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the rapper met the high-end perception. Mm-hmm. Now, the reality was the steak they were using in the restaurant came from the Cisco truck and it was three ninety nine dollars a pound. And you really couldn't tell if the the New York Strip was actually like, you know, a cow that had lived within the last hundred years or if it was accidentally hit by someone uh, two decades ago, the product wasn't. The actual ingredients that were being used weren't high-end. They weren't Mm -hmm. luxury ingredients, but the wrapper gave the opinion. It's about branding. And and I think we have seen in that category, and and I've felt pretty strongly and have a couple of other guests coming up over the next month or two that some of what we've seen in the food and restaurant world has preceded the same path the flower world is currently on Mm -hmm. that there was the moment where those type restaurants got sort of blown up 
where there were restaurants that opened, creative people, chef-driven restaurants that were saying, uh, you know what? Uh, Jerry's restaurant, you know, at Jerry's Steakhouse, um, the steak he's using is like lower grade than what you buy at a grocery store. I'm actually going out and sourcing like the best you can get. It is, if that's local domestically, I'm, I'm really sourcing here. I'm really putting a lot of effort and trying to have the product I'm using back up the creativity that I want to present to you. Do you see any kind of synergy there? Because it feels like to me that this is sort of where we're at. So like we're at this like beginning of maybe that tide turning on those people who have maybe been able to get away with that for probably a really long period of time. Yeah, I mean, I don't see, I, I feel like consumers want an authentic experience with their designers. And maybe that's here in our bubble in the D.C. area. Um, I don't see as much of the luxury uh, perception that they're wanting. Yes, there's always going to be that upper echelon and the people that are drawn to that. But I really feel like they're, the consumer is wanting, and maybe I'm going back on the words, I feel like they do want to connect with where their flowers are coming from, and they just don't understand that. And then I say that because of the type of styles that they're bringing to us. Um, what's getting put out there, you know, on social media and Pinterest, um, I'm seeing them bring to me, um, you know, the organic garden style um, with those unique dahlias and um, the garden roses um, that I know that grow here in the United States, the unique varieties. And um, I... I struggle with this. Um, when I started in 2000, the luxury brand designers were what most of us aspired to be. I mean, like that was, you were, you had made it if you had gotten to that level. Um, and it wasn't about where the flowers were coming from. It was about the overall perception and the look. It was about um, the ideology behind it. And I feel like it's, I feel like there, there is a wave of going back to this um, connect with more natural-looking flowers, not these commodity um, specimens that you're talking about. Um, they they want to see the, the natural um, uniqueness of these blooms. Well, I don't know. It's a, well, it's a frustrating world. Well, and, well, and I, I think it's, for me, like you're in, you know, sort of a Southeast vibe, and I'm sure you see this similarly sometimes. Like uh, what I, I'm told sometimes, and this has been interesting for me because we do have such a strong retail presence and then beyond my mm-hmm. vocalness on Instagram that sometimes designers will say to me, well, all clients want is eucalyptus, white roses, oh and snowball white hydrangeas, repeat. But Mm -hmm. here's what's so fascinating. When we have a retail guest come out, I don't hear any of that. I I, I hear people that are like, uh, no, that stuff's boring. That's like what my grandma would have wanted to use. I love this really cool plant or this really cool flower, and that's really cool too. And in fact, for those of you playing the at-home Natchez Glen game, we've gotten 
two weddings this year that we're actually hosting here solely based upon this subject that they had met with local floral designers and the local floral designers were like, yeah, we'll do eucalyptus, white hydrangea and roses. And these two brides were like, nah, there's this place over here. They do these really cool flowers. And the literal floral designer was like, Kelly, well, those flowers won't be available for your wedding. And they were like, well, no, that's not true. I asked Steve. He said they would be. And that to me. The consumer is doing their homework. That's it. The consumer, you you know, and that's sometimes when, 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 you know, I brought up that luxury thing, you know, I, I wonder if the, you know, to use this food analogy, Kelly, because it's fun and it's almost lunchtime is the consumer not being fed what they really want by some of these designers or the, you know, the designers just feeding them the same old thing they've been doing now and and making maybe good profit margin on. Well, exactly. I mean, there's, you can make it a 70, 75% profit if you're using the same stuff every week and you're not challenging yourself. And I mean, you like, you have that down to a T. Um, and that's hard to move away from. Um, but it's boring and there's, there's no story behind it. I mean, I kind of said sometimes that I'm a floral storyteller. I, I like it to reflect seasonality. I like it to reflect um, regionality. Um, and, and the wedding should reflect the couple as a whole um, and what they want. And there's, you know, as I become more vocal, more come to me and they say, I love the way that you source. And the fact that they use those words and those are my ideal clients. I'm not always going to get those, but there's the, the ones out there that are really paying attention and they're doing the homework and they go and they follow the farms that I'm tagging and, you know, they're educating themselves, you know, off of Pinterest. You know, Pinterest has been the death of so much of this. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's awesome that that consumer and totally schooled that designer and said, nope, you know, this well, is what I want and and I know it's available. And this brings us a little bit full circle to what you were saying in how you came to work and created dialogue with the flower grower. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's one of the reasons why I do these rambling Instagram lives, Kelly, where I try to hope, help aspirational flower farmer, people that grow flowers, sell flowers types to create your flower farm, whatever that is, as a bit of a hub for this type of information as well. That if you get out there in front, like you're saying, of of storytelling with flowers, you can counter this narrative of international cheap flowers. Mm -hmm. And you've brought up the word three times to me. And before we started recording, we had this conversation a little bit. And I find this really... um, Anyone that thinks that I'm somehow offended by this would never see the smile on my face every time this is brought up about being vocal. And I know there are people with me within this little niche of the world, Kelly, that we we co-inhabit a little bit with flower grower, floral designer people, where people are like, that guy is so vocal. Like he just won't stop talking about all of these subjects and getting very close to like on the nose conversation. One well, of you, one of the reasons why <laughs> well, well, one of Love the it. one of the reasons why I have been so vocal about it that I shared with you is I'm seeing a lot of the other side of this story 
the people that get into flower growing and it's not going well, the people that are struggling, the people that are now in debt because of this. So bringing some authenticity, I felt, was really important. I'm going to put this on you a little bit because I, I have made this almost, I want to get a t-shirt, Kelly, that almost says this. Everything that I hear in the floral design world, there may in fact be several podcasts that are about the floral design world. I'll let you people Google search it. That everything's just so unbelievably over the top positive. Everything's great. Everything's great. Everything's great. And all in my mind I can envision is a small child with their fingers in their ears going, everything's great. Everything's great. Everything's great. Why? Why is there not a lot of this kind of authentic talk, Kelly? There's not because, and I struggle with this too, of not, I don't want to show the nasty behind the scenes stuff. I want to keep a positive dialogue on my, on my Instagram. I do try to talk about the farms and, you know, what their challenges are and things like that. Um, but People just want to escape. They want to pretend like the world is great. They they want the pretty. It's like watching, you know, chick flicks. You turn it on because you want to escape. You don't want to think about the reality of, you know, what's really going on out there. And people buy into that. I mean, this whole thing about Instagram influencers, we were talking about this on Saturday going to my wedding. Um, my friend and I were just like, you know, this younger generation just lives in this world of social media where everything's beautiful, everything's happy. Um, I'm just going to go out and take pretty pictures and just talk about all the happy stuff. And then they're falling apart behind the scenes and everybody is just crying. <laughs> it's such a... Oh, it's, so, it's so gross. Um, there needs to be more authenticity. Um, but I think it, it's a scary thing to be vulnerable like you are, um, and to, to have the true dialogue and to ask the hard questions. Um, but somebody needs to be doing it. And I appreciate that you're out there challenging people and that you're, um, creating a dialogue that is happening behind the scenes, but you're bringing it to the forefront. Well, there's for me, one of my professional roles has often been going in and breaking down what's going on within a business. Mm -hmm. And the only way you succeed in breaking down that business is sometimes having a very uncomfortable conversation with the owner that says, yeah, you guys do this really bad. This is really bad. Like this is your Achilles heel here. And if we don't start with that, we're not going anywhere. And for me, looking at this category, I clearly see a lot of those same problems that we're not really addressing some of these key problem points mm -hmm. that consumers are at the mercy many times of like what you're saying, what they see on Pinterest, what they see on Instagram. And there aren't a lot of people filling in the narrative behind that. It's just the pretty yeah. picture. So when they see a Dahlia in January or a, uh, you know, a Shirley Poppy or something like that on Pinterest, they have no clue those flowers aren't available. 
Well, they have no idea of that. So how do we get people to be maybe a little bit more confident just in, the, in your floral design world? I'll deal with the flower farmers, Kelly. Don't worry. I got that cup. But how do we get that? Is it a confidence thing? Because I believe consumers want some transparency. I, I think that is a positive thing in a 2019 dialogue. I think, one, you got to get designers out of their studios. Um, they're not out. You know, if they're going to talk about the flowers and where they're coming from and how they're sourcing or what they're seeing, um, they have, they have to get their boots on the ground. I mean, a lot of these designers aren't using their studios. They're just sitting behind a computer or a phone. Um, I think more designers need to get out there and interact and, and have these face to face, um, interactions. Um, I think that's where you're going to see real growth and you're going to have authenticness, um, out on Instagram and um, I mean like anytime I'm out at a farm I'm I'm putting it out there I'm showing what this farmer is growing or um, you know highlighting I, I really celebrate you know who who I'm working with and what they're growing and um, you know I, I use Instagram in that way as a platform to celebrate and educate um, and you know Maybe I need to do more of the authentic talk about what is the hard stuff that's going on. Um, I think, I think designers, I mean, that's why I'm so passionate about getting to the farms. Like I say to, you know, the, my peers all the time, like get out there, walk the fields with your farmers, like have that conversation because you're both going to grow from it. The farmer's going to, you know, see a perspective that they hadn't thought of and, um, you know, there's those like kismet moments where you're just like, wow, okay, well, we just totally grew in that situation and, you know, um, a new opportunity, um, well, and that's, should, and that's how the relationship should be, right? Like there, there, mm-hmm. you know, I have, I will, again, in the efforts of continual transparency this year for me, I've debated because we continue to grow locally as a presence how do I handle my wholesale business? Do I want to even venture into wholesale business this year? Is it smarter for me if I bring in some kind of in-house floral designer that I work with and we just directly source the jobs where I just have one person? Is that a better business model for me if the volume that I can produce exceeds the floral designers in the market and what they're using. And if they keep picking column B, right? If they continue to pick international grown flower and it's not a price issue, if I'm willing to match price and it's just a convenience mm-hmm. issue, well, I'm pretty good at reaching consumers. Mm-hmm. So I don't maybe need you in the equation. And I don't really want to do that. You know, honestly, Kelly, you know, I'm, I have enough of a business model going on here with Matches Glenn. I don't need to be in the floral design business too, but I have the product. I have the resource. Right. So as we we go through this, one of the, the things that happened recently, and I'm, I'm sure you're aware of this because I think anyone in this little corner probably saw this. I have noticed a very large effort on the part of these international 
flower growers and re-wholesalers to partner in some capacity with Instagram higher profile floral designers Mm -hmm. and get that product in their hands or Mm -hmm. get them to their farms in Latin America. Great. I mean, it's brilliant. Exactly. Um, That, that was my perception. If I was one of, if I was one of those companies, I would be doing the exact same thing. Now they know what they're doing. (laughs) They're not stupid. And I know you work uh, a, a good amount with uh, like uh, Casey over at American Grown mm-hmm. Flowers yep. and that group. For those of you that don't know, uh, American Grown Flowers is a um, association of uh, flower growers domestically in the United States that has a brand mark that they put on a bouquets at point of sale for uh, retail, uh, showing mm-hmm. the flowers are American grown. And uh, they do lobbying efforts on behalf of uh, American uh, flower growers are, are you, did, as you said, it's definitely a smart decision on these international flower growers. What's sort of been like behind the scenes? Has there been any talk of that? Is, is that gotten people's attention that these companies did reach out to these, you know, more popular uh, designers through social media. And we did sort of see the parade of international flowers over the last 30 or 40 days or so on Instagram. Yeah. Well, the hard thing is, is roses draw attention. They're romanticized, they're sexy. And every floral designer out there wants them. They want to get their hands on them. And, you know, in the, in the 90s, when all that change happened and we sent all our money down to South America to teach them how to grow, um, our rose farms dried up. And there's very few left, you know, there's, a handful in California and there's you and there's some in Oregon and Washington, but they're not visible on the scene like these bigger farms down in South America. And so I think the problem is, is that rose growers or flower farmers in the United States need to be doing the same thing. They need to get in the game. Um, and you know, woo the floral designer. It, it it all depends. A lot of these flower farmers, their focus is on the mass market and it's not on selling to the designers. And some of the conversations I have with them is, we'll diversify. Yes, you have your mass market and that's your bread and butter, but there's a whole realm that you're missing out on. That so we're, if we know that you have product and that you have product consistently and it's high quality, we're going to buy it. And it's okay that it's going to cost more. Um, I mean, this is the conversation I have. If I want to buy domestic, I don't want to source out of the country. Am I a hundred percent American grown in the way that I source? No, it is a goal of mine. Um, but you know, the issue of availability sometimes comes up. Um, well, I think it's the old argument of, you know, the restaurant that wants to use an avocado in January is going to source the avocado where they can for that restaurant, for that menu, for that need. I think everybody understands those kinds of dilemmas. Mm-hmm. How is what can really concern me is I'm sort of parsing words here, Kelly, as you can tell that I'm really fascinated by, I heard something recently 
that the international flower growers may be moving a little bit more to a direct ship model where they can deliver directly to like the designer versus it always going through maybe a re-wholesaler locally in that market. Is that something that you've also seen trending by people that heavily use international flowers that maybe that's a movement here too by those international flower growers is just trying to cut out a bit of the middle? I have not seen that. Um, I think some of the Instagram influencers that you've seen, I think those are specific, um, direct, purposeful um and like the farm sent those to those people for specific reasons. Um, can that designer then probably get it from the farm every time? Probably not. I mean, I mean, maybe maybe these these growers are um, moving towards a more direct, but I I don't see that happening. I mean, the wholesalers I really feel have like a huge hold on it, um, and the wholesalers aren't going to tolerate that. Um, you know. I I will never try to cut out a wholesaler, but if I if I have a wholesaler who is not going to bring in the product that I want, then I'm going to go around them and I'm going to go directly to the farm um, for me. Um, and I don't, I mean, I, I do that a lot um, because I can't sit around and wait. In regards to the South American countries selling directly to designers, I don't have any insight into that, honestly. Yeah, it's just an interesting, you know, because we see this in so many businesses right now, trying to go single channel, trying to eliminate what has historically been like the middle point in the triangle. And with flowers, like what you were saying, you know, there are many domestic flower growers that are looking to shipping and transporting flowers if they can to, mm-hmm. you know, farms or from the farm to designers. You know, that model could exist for people. Let me bring us over to a subject that, that is a little bit sensitive here, Kelly, because this is something that in the, uh, the podcast with Nate Miller and myself about Colombian grown flowers uh, came up over and over again. It was something that um, it's probably awkward for a guy named Steve and a guy named Nate to talk about, but I, I think it's something that I'm interested in if it comes up in conversation when you work with clients or if when you talk to other designers, that such a big movement over the last 10, 15, and I could argue far longer, um, movement to empower women business owners, a large percentage of the floral world has been that, has been moms, wives, women, taking ownership in that category Mm -hmm. and in that space and creating successful businesses. But on the other side of the world, literally, the majority of people working at these flower farms in some very questionable, at the very least, workers' rights, at the very worst, Mm -hmm. human rights issues are 80% women in those jobs. Is that something that obviously for yourself, you're 
aware of this? Is it something mm-hmm. you share with clients? Is it something that other designers talk about? Or again, is this a, is this a subject that's almost, again, like I mentioned, in me having to preface this, Kelly, I've been talking now for three minutes trying to preface it, that it's a difficult one. It's a difficult thing. Like, How do you position that for people to educate them to a subject that is very sensitive at the least? No, I don't bring it up. Um, is it a conversation among the designers? I think the conversation that comes up more honestly is the use of chemicals. Um, and not so much who is working in these poor conditions. Um, there's a, there's an awareness of it, but people want to turn a blind eye to it too. Um, because they don't want to, they don't want that associated. And if I, if we just ignore it, then, then it doesn't exist, right? Um, if we don't talk about it, um, but it needs to be talked about. You're right. Um, well, and no, it's not, it's not something I bring up, um, about the specific work conditions and the specific workforce in these other countries. Well, and it, um, it almost felt yeah. like there was a bit of a shell game on the part of, after 2012, of a lot of the international flower growers, that the awareness of, like you said, like chemical usage, I think uh, The Guardian in the UK did a report on it. I think uh, BBC may have even aired that same report talking about chemical use in internationally grown flowers. And they may have pulled like a shell game here, right? Because they were like, oh, see, we fixed it. Everything's good now. But what I found so fascinating when I had Nate on from Paso International was the report was so recent, Kelly, you know, with the working conditions and the labor lack of rights on the part of employees. And it was a 2017 report. You know, when he and I recorded the podcast, he had just been to Columbia three weeks earlier, again, meeting and talking with these people. And I feel like it was almost intentional, again, another smart decision on the part of these owners of these companies to say, oh, see, we clean things up. We're using less chemicals. But nobody then talks about the workers' rights issues of people working 120, 130 hours a week and being paid $260 US a month. That, you you know, and, and and I understand everybody's as a a very well-trained salesperson, I understand the difficulty in weaving that narrative through occasionally. But again, you know, it's a really important one. It it really does, you know, hit home. And, and, you know, if if I was someone in that position who was like, Hey, I want to be a, a strong leader within my field. And I knew those type of things were going on. I have a real conflict internally, Kelly. And I guess that's what I'm sort of getting at is that, is there, do you think people have a hard time sleeping at night, Kelly, if they're using these products in in mass? I mean, it doesn't feel like that to me, at least externally. No, because it's, they're removed from it. They don't see it. It's just, it doesn't, it doesn't affect them. No, nobody's, I mean, I'm sure there are people losing sleep people that are very sensitive and cognizant of it. Um, there are designers that are, are very intentional um, in the way that they source and meet the, the designers that are not sourcing. Um, and, you know, 
from these countries. Um, does the average designer know that these situations are happening? No. No. They don't care. Maybe they would care if they took the time to research it and understand because I don't think anybody can do that cognizantly and know that these situations are happening. But again, you know, when we go to Walmart and we buy cheap clothing and cheap products, we don't care what that person made. If they made a dollar a day, we're just looking for the next cheap thing. I mean, we're very, you know, Amazon heavy. I need it now and I need it affordable uh, world. Well, and this leads me a little bit to, I know you had an opportunity with American Grown Flowers to be a part of some of what they're doing in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. with attempts to lobbying. Walk me through that a little bit because I was curious. And then, of, and of course, Casey sent me a DM mm-hmm. saying, when am, when am I going to join American Grown Flowers and go to Washington, D.C. with them? Um, you should be there with us. Your voice needs to be heard. Well, I'm curious if of what was that experience like walk me through that a little bit was that the first time you had had an opportunity to do that no. this is my second year um i asked casey um last year on this personal journey to learn more um you know, i come from a journalism background um that's where i studied in undergrad and um i've always been interested in like the anthropological um approach learning things and just like really embedding myself um, because I have to do to understand instead of just read. So I wanted to join them on Capitol Hill and, and see um, what it was that they were dealing with. I mean, I went in completely blind last year, um, you know, because we can talk about all the happy, fun stuff and be on the flower farm and, you know, see all the pretty, but what goes on behind the scenes to understand where flower farming was in the 90s versus where it is now um it's it's eye-opening so um each year flower farmers from all over the country from alaska to florida um meet and for two days we go um to capitol hill and we we have a lobbyist that we work with um who sets up these meetings with um, the different state um congressmen and a lot of times we're meeting with the staffers, but the staffers are the ones that, you know, really help push um, policy through. Um, and the things that we really focus on is fair trade agreements, um, the label law enforcement. Like when you go into the grocery store and you pick up um, a bouquet from Safeway and there's a barcode, um, it should say country of origin. And if you go into a grocery store today, I guarantee you, you will find very few plastic sleeves that have country of origin and and that's a law that has to be uh followed um and countries are skirting that they're putting it on the outer box that all these flowers come into whereas the law says the outermost portion um or packaging that reaches the consumer should give them country of origin just like your blueberries you know you have the option of buying your blueberries and strawberries from California, or you have the option of buying them from Mexico most days. Um, you know, and so our whole thing is, if given the option, if you're holding a package that says grown in USA or grown in Virginia or grown in California versus grown in Colombia, 
a, an American consumer is more likely going to want to support um, and buy that American-grown product. Um, so that's a big thing that, you know, they have been working on. Um, and that's why that, that certified American-grown label um, is so important because it's so visible. Um, I don't see it a lot here on the East Coast. I know in California it is very visible. I was just there two weeks ago and I was in Safeway and they have an amazing program in Northern California called the Blue Bucket Program where a consumer walks into the store and they know that everything in a blue bucket is either grown in California or grown um, somewhere in the United States. And so they're training, you know, their consumers to be very aware of where their flowers come from. Um, some other things that we, you know, work on when we go is that the White House does not source American-grown flowers. And that's a huge thing for us, that that should be a role model for the rest of the country on how to source, you know, their, their cheeses and their wines are all American-made. Um, so why should the flowers on the table not be American grown? Um, Walk me through like the reaction from like when you meet with these staffers, Mm -hmm. what's the range? Because I'm sure there is a range of reaction, Kelly. Um, The one that gets the most reaction is that the White House does not source American grown flowers. They're like, what? Really? No. And, I, and we're like, yeah, they, they don't. Um, imported flowers are showcased in the White House every day. Um, and how amazing would that be if all 50 states who grow different varieties throughout the year were displayed, you know, on a daily basis on um, all the desks of, you know, all the um, policymakers. Um, is there some know. effort on, uh, is specific here to the when you were there? Are there specific talks to roll back some of the the tariffs that were lifted on like the Colombian specifically with the uh, I believe it's the Andean trade agreement that was put in place? Is there talk of rolling that back to put taxation back on those Colombian flowers, or just more oversight to transparency to where the flowers are coming from? Um. They're, the points that they focus on is having fair trade agreements and not just free trade agreements um, and putting it on, putting the interest on all the American workers and businesses first. Um, so certified American ground, um, the trade policies impact the U.S. floral industry um, in a way. They want it to be a more level playing field. Um, with production from other countries. And, you know, right now it's not... um, I'm trying to look at my notes that I took. Um, One of the things that concerns me about it, Kelly, is, again, there's... Unfortunately, I've seen this already, right? So before I start doing that shows, Glenn, as a full-time flower operation, mm -hmm. I'm aware of, of some of these subjects. But one of... The unfortunate things I have noticed over the last 10 to 12 months is there's this big looming problem, like you and I have discussed here today, about international flowers and all the issues that go into that, be it the human rights issues, 
the workers' right issues, and then beyond that, the domestic economy elements that, that all of that impact. But here's what I'm seeing too. So we have this fragmented flower grower world, right? We mm-hmm. have like a lot of the, uh, like the Association of Specialty Cut Flowers. We've got slow mm-hmm. flowers and we've got American grown flowers. It's like everybody wants to have their own little corner. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Instead of maybe looking at it more in this way of, hey, you know, the, the big villain here in this story, and yes, people, I said villain, is the international versus domestic. And I think sometimes the small grower has a little bit of animosity towards like the large Californian grower that has a big greenhouse production and doesn't see that, hey, listen, I get it. You think there's some kind of difference there, but there's sort of a bigger game at play here than just that. And the bigger game at play here is to go back to pick on the cappuccino rose that wouldn't it be better if we started having designers and wholesalers and florists who first bought domestically versus Mm -hmm. the cappuccino rose from Bogota, that it has, did that come up in in any of the conversation there? I know in, in working with American grown flowers, that that's probably something that they're aware of that are these staffers even aware that this sort of thing is existing, right? That that the flower economy in this country went from, you know, this to like nothing in like less than 20 years. And now it's sort of fractured into all of these different groups. It depends on the staffers. Some of them are, have been around for a while and have worked with other congressmen and, and dealt with trade. Um, but a lot of the staffers that I encountered had, no knowledge of this. I mean, they're all briefed ahead of time and they're given a packet and they know why we're coming and what we want to talk about. Um, but their knowledge of, of the history of flower farming and what happened in the nineties. I mean, some of these kids, let's be honest, were born in the nineties, some of these staffers. Um, so their awareness to it is, is pretty slim. Um, so, I mean, we have really good conversations while we're, I were on the hill and, um, you know, they're asking the questions. It's not just sitting there, just us talking, but we're creating dialogue. And, you know, it's not something that, you know, change isn't going to happen overnight. That's why they go every February. Um, and you have to keep discussing the same issues, you know, for change to happen. Um, but no, I, I think that there's, uh, a lack of knowledge um, on some, you know, flower farming industry has um, declined, you know, from 58% to 27% from 1991 to 2015. I mean, it's pretty, uh, there's a big story there. And so, you know, that's why it's so important for, for people who are passionate about getting back, you know, to helping this floor culture industry thrive. Um, cause it's gonna, um, go away if, if people aren't out there, you know, boots on the ground saying, Hey, change has got to happen. Well, and it's one of the reasons why Kelly, that I've been so vocal against some of the people that decided to go into the online course workshop business instead of the vocal business as a platform. 
that when you start to get a bit of a, a following, a platform on social media, I think you have a choice, right? You have a choice of, okay, I'm going to use this platform and I'm going to create as many profit models off of this as I can. I think that's one choice. And then I think there's another choice that is, okay, I've got this platform. I'm going to create profit models for me to run a successful business, but I'd also like to use it as a platform for some transparency, for some dialogue. And many of the people in the flower farmer world didn't pick the second one to me. They picked the profit model exclusively world. And this topic of if you're going to be a flower farmer is really no different than if you're going to be a floral designer. In fact, you know, the argument is if you're a flower farmer, you're impacted extremely negatively by the international flower world and some of what goes on there and some of the, I mean, the conversation with Nate Miller, for anyone that hasn't listened to it, it's not just Glenn House Stories, I believe, 18 or 19. Just go listen to them all first off, people. But then when you get to the one with Nate Miller, is it all flowers? It's really a little rattling to hear it in that kind of context and to hear the numbers and hear the stories. And if you're a flower farmer and you're not aware of that from day one, that that exists, and that that market is so powerful and that it's generating billions of dollars in the revenue chain per year with those flowers coming out of Latin America, that you're just ill-prepared to be a flower farmer, frankly. And I would think the same thing for a floral designer, that it's a hugely important conversation to be had, however you look at it, right? If you look at it as a way to leverage uh, margin or if you look at it as a way to uh, leverage sales to to tell people the story of international flowers. That it's a really important thing, Kelly. That just doesn't seem to be really out there on any of the larger Instagram accounts. I see nobody's talking about it on those platforms, except for me, obviously. They they want to talk about the pretty. I mean, it goes back to that. It's just this false reality, um, and they don't want to, you know, broach the hard the hard stuff. Um, because then that, that questions everything that they're doing too, you know? Um, so they're selling pretty, they're selling, they're selling experience. Um, they don't have the same agendas as you and me. Let's, let's start to wrap up here, the conversation and let's go over some real details here of flower farmer, floral designer, Kelly, you ready? You and I are going to do this. Like we're working together for the first time, right? Okay. Vaz life. Vaz life. This is like hashtag Vaz life is my next t-shirt. I have a whole string of t-shirts I'm going to create that people can buy. Uh, You can support me on Patreon. You can uh, donate to my GoFundMe and any other way. Yeah. Any any way that people send me money, uh, you can Venmo me. um, You can send me a carrier pigeon with a dollar bill tied to its foot. So Vaz life. The other day, I found a really cool brand new flower. It's a brand new introduction for 2020, Kelly. I have it here at Natchez Glen, but it won't even be widely available to 2020. I was very excited about this flower. What is it? It's a rose. uh, It's out of the Rosa Holthemia. So it's got this really dark raspberry red eye in the middle. 
but the flower mm. opens with like a lavendery tone, then goes what? to a bit of like a peach yellow, and then fades away with like a cream at the very end. Um, what in it's, the world? Yeah, it's fragrant. It's very cool. It's very unique. I was really excited about it. I know the uh, Tom Caruth actually. He used to be the breeder at Weeks Roses. He had a like a twenty year passion to try to create this particular rose and actually the rose came out after he left week's rose it's the whole thing kelly you know it took this guy a minute right <laughs> like it was a it was a real ordeal to get this particular species of rose to the state they have this variety called uh in your eyes so i'm Very growing cool. it i'm pretty stoked right it's fragrant it's got a lot of the checkpoints for me well i sent it to a few floral designers locally and was like hey what do you think right mm-hmm. and two of the five i sent it to were like what do you think the vase life is going to be? Now, I was a little bummed that that was question one, first off, Kelly. But what's acceptable vase life for, for you as a floral designer? Like, what's Ooh. the number that you say, okay, I'm comfortable with about this being the average for a flower? So who were these designers? Were they retail or were they event designers? One is event and one is a little retail and a little event. Uh, retail has a very different view on base life. They want it to last seven to 10 days. Um, me, I need it to look good for one day. So it needs to have about a five day from the time that I get it to the time that I get it to peak uh, bloom. So, but the thing is, I hear from so many of my clients that a week later, the flowers still look pristine. And I, I'm very methodical in the way that I clean my buckets, which, let's be honest, um, most of my friends don't clean their buckets. Um, I don't understand why, but that's a whole other story. Um, and two, you know, I use flower food, which I know some people disagree with. I do, um, because I have hard water here, and um, my flowers last longer when I use the flower food. So, um, I get your roses here on Monday. I need them to look amazing for Saturday. I honestly don't care if they bite the dust the next day because they've done their job, but if they do last longer, then that's bonus. The, the thought to me that, that sent shivers down my spine of someone growing flowers, Kelly, was a comment uh, out of Latin American grown flower production that the expectation for vase life on some of those stems was 10 to 14 days. And I, But at what quality and what does it look like? And, you know, and how long has it since it left, the, it was cut from the farm? have ended up in that studio i mean and what what makes it be able to last that long and the expectation on the floral designer is something i wonder if we're also trying to there's a a lack of maybe moving off of that 10 to 14 day thought on the part of maybe some older school floral designers it's a perishable product how long do your strawberries last i mean do you want those to last for two weeks? No. It's a perishable product, and something fresh has an expiration date. And that's okay. 
I don't I don't want a perishable product lasting for two three weeks. Well, because I don't know why it, what chemicals were used to get it to produce like that. Well, and it does lead to the question, Kelly, of if that becomes the paramount, why aren't we just all using silk flowers to begin with, right? Like, why are we even having a conversation right. about using live flowers? If we could just get a silk flower from Michael's or Joanne's and it lasts exactly. us forever and our grandma forgets to dust and then go over to her house right. and she has weird dusty silk flowers, which is real creeps yeah. and usually Buffalo Bill is in the basement with a hose. So let- it just goes back to expectation, expectation about what flowers cost and expectation about, you know, the quality and the life of a flower. Well, and that also, so here's the next question as far as expectations goes. You and I are meeting for the first time. So how do you work? Or do you want, so when you're buying your flowers from a local farm, Mm -hmm. are you working off of specific flowers by variety or are you working off of a palette within that variety? As an example with roses, are you like, I need 100 of just this variety of this rose, or are you saying I need 100 roses in an apricot peach kind of color tone? It depends. It varies wedding to wedding. Um, I I have my staples that I know that I, you know, I can get large quantities of each week, and these are the 365 day varieties you know that are coming out of california so i have those but then my more unique varieties a lot of times i'll hit up my flower farmers and i'll say hey what do you have and blush pink burgundy and whites this week they'll send me a list and i'm like okay give me 50 of that 50 of this can be different varieties i don't care um and then i always leave room in my budget for when I go to pick up the flowers and I can see all those extra little something that maybe the farmer didn't think that my palette or maybe I didn't even think of. Um, but I, I don't just give a color palette to, I'm sourcing from so many different farms and because I've been doing this for a while now, I know what I can get from who. So I reach out to my, um, my trusted ones that I know can get it to me. Um, but maybe they had a rough week or maybe a designer got to them before me and they're sold out. So I had, I had such a diverse directory of farms to pull from. Um, and some weeks it takes a little bit of extra work um, pulling in, but it, it, it really varies depend, depending on the wedding. Um, sometimes I trust, you know, if I know that that farmer has a good eye, one thing I have found with farmers, we um, we don't always see eye to eye on what color is. Um, and uh, if you're dealing with the corals, uh, yeah, that's that's a hard one. Well, but- that that is one of my <laughs> jokes from most of last year, Kelly, was having long conversations about the differences between pink coral oh. and salmon, and yeah, the was, perception. Right. Yes, right? So we have these very nuanced. So in in following up on that, do you find, and this is something that that personally for Natchez Glenn, I've debated with this year. Do you find there is value in you actually going to pick up your product at the farm 
or are you oh. more comfortable with delivery or what's your preference in your process? It depends. I mean, I'm always going to spend more um, if I come to your farm because it's like a kid in a candy store. I mean, you know, I joke with one of my farmers. He's always like, hey, come check out my cooler. And I'm like, come on, you know that I'm going to buy more, like if I see it. Um, but it, some weeks I don't have the time. Um, and some, our farmers, there's seven of them right now in Maryland that have created a co-op. And so, um you know, we're going to put in our orders. They're going to pull based on, you know, quantity from each farms on our orders. And then we're, we have a pickup spot. So they're not delivering, but there's one farm that's going to kind of be the hub. Um, there's other um, scenarios where two of the farmers have teamed up and they, you know, if I hit a $150 minimum, they will deliver to me. Um, it all depends on the week. I mean, there's some weeks where I'll drive 45 minutes north to get 20 stems of a certain dahlia or tulip because I, I need it, you know. Um, it, it depends on the week. I mean, I, I'm willing to go that extra mile because um, I know that the quality is worth it. And, you know, I mean, but that's, that's a little different than some other designers. Some don't care. They just want it delivered on their doorstep, 5 a.m., ready to go, and... So how many events a year are you doing typically? Um, as I've raised my prices, you know, it's more quality um, over quantity. I started out doing about 45 to 50 events a year when I would take any budget. Um, but as I've raised my prices, I'm between 25 to 35 a year. So it fe- And how much of that overlaps with like the, the typical seasonal growing calendar like for the maryland region um the heaviest months for me are june september october and november is becoming quite a popular month um and then i have sprinklings between december to april um but yeah november because we've had such mild november november is becoming quite popular um so you at least have three of your peak months, right? In June, I, June, September, mm-hmm. and October, that the growing calendar mm-hmm. overlaps well with what you're doing. So there's very little, you know, reason there to say that, oh, well, you know, nothing's growing locally in June. Nothing's growing locally in September. Clearly that's not true. Is mm-hmm. you, you mentioned your your field trips that you're working mm-hmm. on. Walk me through one of those here in our close. Like, what is that program? How are you, is it local to just the Maryland, mid-Atlantic region? How are mm-hmm. you trying to get designers out there to farms? So we're starting, this is our, you know, we just launched this in January. Um, our first field trip will be this September at, um, Walt Kukowski's farm in Warren, Vermont, Mountain Flower Farm. He he grows, um, his production is from June through October. Um, and we're going during the height of hydrangea season. Um, and the reason we wanted to start with hydrangea, when Mary-Kate and I sat down with our business plan, we were looking for where were designers really heavy on the imports. And hydrangea is a 
heavy, heavy imports because it is a, um, it's a volume flower. Um, and it's a cheap flower coming from Colombia and Ecuador. Um, and it's one that, you know, if you look at my past work, I sourced hydrangea for many, many years. Um, it was a staple in my weddings. Um, and we are, so it's only for professional floral designers. It's not, you know, for somebody that just wants a pretty field trip to a flower farm because what we want to do is create these relationships for these flower farmers with um, designers that are going to source for them. We want to say we're bringing 20 designers to you that have the desire to make change in their business and they want to source from you during the season. Um, so it's two and a half days on these flower farms where we're walking the fields, we're asking the questions, we're seeing how the product grows, we're hearing about um, what the farmer deals with, um, what it takes to get their product to, um, you know, the pristine quality that they're shipping it to. How do they harvest it? I want to see how you harvest it because that tells me a lot about the flower. I want to see how you, um, how you, you know, process it to ship to me and what, what should I expect on my end when I receive it? A lot of designers don't know how to process flowers to make them last. So they're spending all this money. And then they're processing it wrong. And then that just causes them to not want to source that product again if they're, if they're doing it wrong, you know. Um, and then um, because everybody, you know, loves, every designer wants to have that creative moment and that, that synergy with the flower. We want, we're creating, um, you know, a photo shoot on the flower farm using um, those flowers. So they'll get to make, uh, in Vermont, they'll get to make a bridal bouquet. And then... Um, we like the idea of community and working together. So we're doing a collaboration on a ceremony structure, a foam-free ceremony structure. Um, and so they'll go home not only with um, the multi-sensory experience on the farm, uh, creating those connections. They'll have the photos to build their portfolio and to show clients what it looks like when they're using the farm's products. But also, they get to go home with what we're creating is a field guide. And that field guide has monthly what that farm grows, pictures of the varieties, and, you know, the pricing. So that when they go back into their studios and they're sitting at the computer and they're selling these these events, they have that knowledge of when does that flower grow, what does it cost, and how, you know, we give them all the elements. So they've now experienced it. They see where it grows. They designed with it. And now they know what it costs. So the responsibility is on them to then implement change into their business. Um, so we've given them all the tools. We've given them the confidence. They just have to make the change now. Well, and so I think, can't, I think yeah. you, you mentioned two things that I think are, are vitally important that have surprised me, frankly is the lack of handling knowledge on the part of some designers yeah. on flowers. Mm -hmm. Then the sort of the gardening chops also, Kelly, that, you know, how do flowers grow? How does this particular flower grow? Mm -hmm. When does this flower bloom? When is it at its peak? When is it not at its peak? How do you handle it? What happens? Mm -hmm. That uh, an easy one to pick on, right? The Martha Stewart scourge, Cafe Olay. 
So mm-hmm. cafe au lait as a plant is overly variable. The cream-colored cafe au lait that so many people want, the plant doesn't produce in an equal amount. You can plan no. out you can plan out a thousand cafe au laits and in any one time, the cream color is not going to be the dominant flower available that day. It's going to vary from week to week of how many of that cream are produced. So as an example, if you order 200 cafe au laits from me and I deliver 200 cafe au laits, the percentage that's cream is going to vary tremendously. So if that happens to a designer and then the designer says back to me, well, hey, Steve, I actually had this happen, Kelly. This is why I'm telling the story. But (laughs) those weren't cafe au lait. I go, no, those were in fact cafe au lait. (laughs) You just don't know cafe au lait. Like that's what this comes down to. You've seen that photo of the one cream cafe au lait, Mm. but that dahlia, like many dahlia, is prone to a lot of variability. So Mm -hmm. I think that education that you're talking about is like Mm -hmm. so important that we get people to understand those things. And uh, mm-hmm. this, and and hopefully, here's what I hope we accomplished today, Kelly. I think we did. At least we're going to tell ourselves that, right? That's what's going to happen here. From from <laughs> some from someone who has hardcore horticultural background, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you this. There are so many interesting, magical flowers out there in the world that I would love to grow that I think I could grow and that, you know, they would be in varying scales. But I think the gap right now in that is where am I going to outlet those two? If I go on this path of, you know, we'll we'll pick on hydrangeas, right? There's so many hydrangea varieties now, right? Mm -hmm. Michael Durr down at Georgia did all kinds of work for 15 or 20 years on hydrangeas. So now there's all the big paniculata varieties, the older school tardivas, like there's hydrangea madness in the universe, right? Right. And I'm sure like Walt up in Vermont, he'd probably love nothing more than to be like, hey, Walt, you grow whatever you think is a super awesome, cool hydrangea that I think could be cool for design work too. And everybody gets on that page, right? And now we're not only giving the consumer, the client, something really interesting, but we're also growing a product the commodity market doesn't even have they don't even have that product in production in colombia they don't grow that hydrangea in colombia is that maybe how you see this like if we're creating a perfect utopia kelly here on this end of natchez glenhouse stories is that what you'd like to see us moving towards where we are working in union like that the flower Mm -hmm. grower gets to grow really cool things that you think are cool too we provide a product to the consumer. The consumer thinks it's cool. We all win, Kelly. Yeah, I think I think that there. That's why it's so important to get the flower farmers and the florists in an environment where they can talk this through, where you can hear what the other is dealing with and what the needs of each other are. Um, there are so many moments when I've been on flower farms where you know I'm walking the fields with them I'm I'm looking at what they're growing how they're harvesting it and I'm like wait hang on why is that important and you know they explain it to me and I'm you know for example one of the biggest moments 
of growth for me and for the flower farmers. When I was in Alaska last summer, I took four designers there kind of previewing this floral field trip. And we did the same thing. We spent a week on the farm, which, you know, it's just not feasible for designers to do, but this was a trial thing. Um, but we were harvesting with my friend Beth on Santa Clay's Peenies, and she kept passing up these smaller these smaller buds, and they had this whole grading system. Last year was a hard year for them, and so it was the first time they had to grade their, their buds um, because it had been colder and not as much sunshine. So she was passing up these smaller varieties, and I said, Beth, what are you doing? And she said, I can't sell those. I said, why? And she said, nobody's going to want that. We're known for our larger blooms. And I said, okay, I get that. You're selling these blooms at, you know, $4 a stem because they're three times the size of what you're getting in the lower 48. But that's smaller, but there is still a market for that. And you know what? Having that, she was able to sell 300 stems that week to a buyer somewhere in the United States because of just understanding what somebody would pay for that. And is there a need for it? So there is just so much potential for changing the way that we source, the way that we grow when we have that dialogue. And so getting on these farms, walking the fields, having these conversations is, I think, is definitely going to change. And it's, it's going to change the way designers think about what they're sourcing, about how they're designing. Designs are going to change. Um, I think I don't think we're going anywhere away from the natural look and celebrating each flower, you know, and its uniqueness. Um, and we're we're getting away from that roundy moundy garbage, you know, of just like flowers and mass. Um, that's such but, an important theme there, right? And that's that, that's where I want everybody to think, right? If you're listening to this and you're a consumer, aka human being. And you've thought about flowers before. And if you're listening to this, you've probably heard me rant on these subjects numerous times. But the world of flowers is magic, right? It's not the commodity grocery store flower that's had a little bit of its magic sapped out of it, right? It's like it used to be a woodland fairy, then something bad happened and that lost its powers. That's how I look at those flowers. But like what you're saying, Kelly, like that experience in Alaska. Mm -hmm. Like there is like real synergy to be mm -hmm. had here and probably the model of the past where we had like the huge greenhouse growers even domestically has probably come and gone. I, I don't think we're getting back to that, but could we get to a new place that's probably even way more exciting and more magical where we have smaller boutique specialty growers who do really cool things that work with designers and mm -hmm. work with wholesalers. I think that can happen. Mm -hmm. Those I think it can it's, we want it to happen on the larger scale on the bigger farm too. Because like I said, um when you asked me how I plan out my event, you know, I know that I have stock growers in California that I know I can get 300 stems from um, of a certain variety. And that's important to know that, you know, I can get that from South America, but I'm going to get it from California because I know that I have a reliable source. So I think where the, the magical factor comes in is on these boutique farms who are listening, like you said. So what we want is to, you know, designers and, and there are boutique farms 
um, that are around the country that are really just working with event designers, the ones that, you know, are willing to pay the higher dollar and um, want to make varieties and are willing to give their product a chance. Cheaters, cheating, liars, lie Without cause or alibi They don't know cause they don't care And love and war all is fair Hearts are broken, love goes stale the real world ain't no fairy tale. Nothing turned out like you thought. Now look at all the time you've lost. You'll never get it back. Oh, you should have known. Most would have realized that. Most would have realized that a long, long time ago. 